Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode was recorded as a live virtual taping of the podcast in partnership with the group Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, YPFP. The episode features my interview with the Middle East energy policy expert Mohammed Solomon. We discuss the impact of COVID-19 and slumping oil prices on the politics and economies of the Middle East. Mohammed Soliman is a non-resident scholar with the Middle East Institute and a member of the McClarty Associates' MENA practice. We kick off discussing how wealthy Gulf states like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar used their oil wealth in the wake of the Arab Spring to shore up domestic stability and pursue their regional foreign policy goals. We then have an extended conversation about the ways in which COVID-19 and low oil prices are shaking up the foundations of the geopolitics of the Middle East. After my interview portion concludes, Jeffrey Nam of YPFP reads questions submitted from the audience. And a big thank you to Jeffrey and Colleen Moore of YPFP for organizing the event. If you are with an organization and would like to partner with the podcast for a live virtual event, please send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I love doing these events. And a big thank you to YPFP, which is a great organization, for partnering with the show around today's episode. And now here is my conversation with Mohammed Solomon. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you, Jeffrey, and thank you also to Colleen and to all of YPFP for uh, letting me host this virtual taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. And I should say before we start... You know, back when I could more credibly be considered uh, younger, I was a member of YPFP in its very early days in, in 2004, 2005, 2006. So I'm very glad to be uh, returning to you. And this is actually the second live taping with YPFP that I have done uh, over the course of this podcast. Uh, we did one about five years ago with an assistant secretary of state in the Obama administration, Sarah Sewell, uh, who we did a, a live in-person event. This was, of course, before uh, the pandemic, uh, and uh, it was at the outskirts on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly that year. So I'm very pleased to be returning to YPFP and bringing this conversation uh, to you. 
So as Jeffrey said, the first 20 minutes or so will unfold as a kind of conventional podcast episode. I'll be asking Mohammed a number of questions about the topic at hand, and then we're going to open it up to you for questions. And I really do want to encourage you to ask questions. To me, I always love hearing what is on your mind, what is on the audience's mind. So do feel free and do feel encouraged to chime in with questions, and we'll get through as many as possible after my portion of the conversation starts. So let us begin. Thank you again to uh, Mohammed. And Mohammed, I wanted to start this conversation by having you paint a picture, paint the scene. Uh, what did the, how did Arab states use their wealth, use their oil wealth in the years around the Arab Spring and the years following the Arab Spring. What did the world of petrostates look like in that period? Thank you, uh, Mark, uh, Jeff, and Colleen, also for working uh, for this event. Um, let's rewind the tape a little bit, 10 years ago. Uh, mass protests erupting in Tunisia, Cairo, Sana'a in Yemen, in Damascus, People from these countries want social warfare. They want democracy, freedoms, um, and successfully removed regimes. Successfully, there uh, there is already a well-established democracy in Tunisia. Someone can argue uh, Egypt already has been through the transition. Um, so there is a lot of movements happening, a lot of change happening, a lot of turbulence, a lot of uncertainty about political systems. Uh, and most of the revolutions and movements at the time were mostly in republics. North Africa, Levant. But the scene in the Arab Gulf was different. Uh, we're speaking about countries that have benefited from what we call the 10 golden years. When the oil prices exceeded $100 per period, that meant that all these countries accumulated a lot of wealth, a lot of uh, foreign reserves. For example, Saudi Arabia uh, for uh, some time had around $900 billion, close to $1 trillion in foreign reserve. Massive. So what do you do if you're the monarch of Saudi Arabia or the UAE when you see uh, the regime of Hosni Mubarak is falling apart because of protest? You deploy your sources, your resources, you deploy your finances to support local economy, uh, offering jobs, increasing wages, uh, food subsidies, oil subsidies. You want to do stuff that makes your own people happy. If you are keeping your people happy, no one really go to the streets. This is how basic it was. And we have seen that in 2011, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia deployed around between 130 to 200 billion dollars on social programs, uh, jobs, uh, uh, construction, giving contracts to local businesses. Similar thing happened in Oman, in Bahrain, uh, in UAE, in Kuwait. All these countries uh, have used their wealth. Other than Bahrain, which is uh, tried to do the same, but they have a lot of demographic problems, Shia, Sunni divide. Uh, all the countries actually avoided similar path. And then when we move to 2012, uh, once they're stabilized their own societies and all the Arab Gulf societies are already okay, and we already, the uh, Arab Gulf states made sure that there's no sort of discontent uh, or a, a revolution in the Gulf, what you do next? You basically try to support uh, governments uh, and uh, stabilizing capitals around the region what I call the shadow center bank of the Middle East. And this is mainly Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar, uh, and Kuwait to some extent, supporting different countries because they already have their own ideological 
uh, uh, differences. I will stop here and I'll let you ask. Yeah. So, so I mean, so after having stabilized their uh, their domestic societies by boosting spending, uh, they 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 shifted towards uh, foreign policy issues. And of course, there has been over the last several years this grand competition across the Middle East, principally between Saudi and UAE on one hand and Qatar on the other. Give some examples about how. Um, those countries used their wealth specifically, their oil wealth specifically, to advance their foreign policy goals? So that's a divide. Um, it, it was always there since late 1990s and maybe into th- 2000s. It was significant. But you, there was still some sort of silver lining. Uh, it was some sort of friction, tensions between Doha, Riyadh, and Abu Dhabi, but not to the extent of a Cold War at this point. Um, Doha always tried to portray itself as uh, a power of change that we that it's uh, the capital that's standing behind social movements or um, Islamist uh, Muslim Brotherhood groups uh, around the uh, around the region. But Abu Dhabi and uh, Riyadh are much more traditional, uh, much more for status quo, stability, and not, we don't really need for change. This is how basic uh, the competition was, um, and. You can see this in Tunisia, you can see this in Cairo, and you can see this in Libya. Um, in Cairo, for example, the three countries were completely uh, at opposite sides. You have um, you have Doha, were main backer for uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, one-year term president Mohamed Morsi between 2012 to 2013. But once the transition happened in 2013, and then uh, General Sisi took over, you see uh, Dubai, Abu Dhabi and Riyadh um, and Kuwait supporting CC uh, uh, financially around between 30 to $50 billion to stabilize the Egyptian budget. Similar scenario happened in Tunisia. The divisions in Tunisia are high, the tensions are high. Today, and like today in, like in Libya, you can see this very apparent. You see the fight between uh, Tripoli and uh, Benghazi and each city has its own uh, regional packers. And I remember I did a, a podcast episode, you know, just this summer, this past summer, so before anyone could have predicted COVID-19 and the economic fallout that, you know, looked at, for example, how UAE and Saudi Arabia and Qatar were um, supporting various sides in all sorts of, of conflicts, even outside like the immediate Middle East to places in, say, uh, Sudan. Um, which has been undergoing a bit of a revolution. So it's just kind of interesting um, to sort of remind people, I think, that we had this kind of Cold War and and these proxy battles happening across uh, the region that were supported by opposite sides uh, in that Gulf divide. But of course, then COVID-19 hit. And what I'd like to do with you for the bulk of this conversation is unpack the ways in which both COVID-19 and also the sharp drop in oil prices has impacted uh, regional politics. So so with that, let me just ask you first on on COVID-19, what have been some of the economic repercussions of COVID-19 across the region and how has that manifested itself? Of course, I will start by the Gulf. Uh, The Gulf is, as we describe the Gulf countries, they are interior states, uh, their source of wealth is mainly petrochemicals, oil and gas sales to um, Southeast Asia and the European markets. And when COVID-19 happened, there was a mass destruction of both supply and demand. People are not consuming and people are not producing. And that has been there 
let's say half of quarter uh, the first quarter and almost the entirely uh, second quarter that affected badly the golf uh, affected badly the golf because first of all the golf budgets are very dependent on the oil prices on the oil sales uh, a country like bahrain needs 91 dollar prepared to stabilize its own budget uh, saudi arabia needs around 80s uh, dubai around 70s and the least uh, like for example color that's called like the break even point or something like that right there is there's a term of art that the imf has for that yeah the break even number that mm. basically the, the oil like oil price per barrel, barrel has to be at a certain number in order for these governments to maintain their domestic spending 100 percent, and mm. to make sure okay. that they're not running deficits uh, with their budgets so mm-hmm. and as you remember and everyone have seen the news that the price the oil price has been really sinking really sinking we're only right now we're just pumping up uh, to mid 40s but a month ago or two months ago we're speaking about 20 22 dollars this is not sustainable and for the first time we're having these wealthy gulf countries are talking about budget deficits, cutting wages, cutting uh, jobs, uh, restrictive uh, fiscal policies. Some countries like Oman, for example, that used to be a very wealthy or company uh, country, want to tap into the debt market and get support for its own budget. So it tells you more about the new dynamics in the Gulf. So mm-hmm. instead of having that mass wealth that you can deploy overseas supporting Morocco or Pakistan or uh, Horn of Africa. Right now, we need this money. We need these finances to support your own uh, local economy and make sure that your population is happy. Because you cannot really be, even if, let's be frank, uh, there is no political systems like uh, actual representation in Arab Gulf countries. It's basically it's it, it's a simple equation. You offering food, you offer supplies, you offer wages to your own citizens, and everyone is happy. You don't ask about politics. You don't ask about democracy in return. Uh, so that means that instead of expansionary foreign policy and supporting allies everywhere in the region, that all these finances will be directed domestically. So, you know, in addition, just that the hit on demand that COVID-19 imposed uh, around the world because people, you know, weren't driving, weren't you know, in need of oil that uh, countries in the Gulf were producing. Uh, there was also it's surprising to me, you know, I, this incredibly um, toxic relationship with Russia that manifested itself between Saudi Arabia and Russia in particular in an an OPEC meeting that resulted in an oil price war that further drove down prices of oil. Can can you describe what was that price war? What triggered it? And what has the impact been in the months since this happened in March, I believe? Um, Let's think about Saudi Arabia as the central bank of the oil market. It's the biggest country when it comes to spare capacity when it comes to how low they produce oil. They only need a few bucks to produce one single barrel of oil. So that makes them always an advantage to take the lead and uh, basically impose certain agendas. And for 30 and 40 and 50 years, specifically in the 1973 war, Saudi Arabia has been taking the lead uh, to drive the oil policy globally. This started to change in the last 20 years. Uh, we have something called the OPEC Plus, the non-members of the OPEC uh, cartel, uh, and you have the shell industry in the, in the US. All these are the new trends for oil. So we have a lot of uh, countries that are not part of the oil uh, of the OPEC uh, production uh, plan who are producing and selling, 
that means that Saudi Arabia is losing a lot of market share. The main competitor in this was basically Russia. Russians have been uh, selling beyond their capacity. Uh, they were no, they were not willing to negotiate for a settlement with uh, Riyadh. And as we have seen, Riyadh wanted certain kind of deal, finalizing deal in March. Russians walked away, and then we all know what happened then, that uh, uh, Riyadh decided to open its own taps and sell oil at cheapest prices that we have ever seen. Uh, and it was basically because they wanted to undersell Russia in an attempt to get their oil to the Chinese market? And exactly. Captured market share. Mm-hmm. It was only and exclusively about market share. And Saudi Arabia was saying, I have my foreign reserves. I can I can handle the bane for as long as, uh, as I can. But in the meantime, Russia cannot. And that was the gamble that arguably succeeded. That because of the Saudi resiliency and flooding the market with cheap Saudi oil, Moscow couldn't really handle that further and then eventually had some sort of U.S.-mediated, U.S.-sponsored, U.S.-pressured deal, whatever you can call this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the end result still is sharply lower oil prices. Um, And, you know, even though they're they're trickling back up a little bit uh, right now from their lows a few uh, months ago, they're still very low. So, yeah, go ahead. The reason is very basic, COVID-19. When COVID-19 happened and there's destruction of like production, there's no production, no one is producing, no one can go to a factory. So we, And the stop of flights, uh, shipping, all the things that you need oil for came to a stop, to a sudden stop. That sudden stop meant that there's 20 million batteries a day are not consumed. And when this deal happened, it only eliminated 10 million uh, batteries at the time. That means that you still supply with around 10 to 12 million better. So you don't need to do the math. It basically tells you that there's plenty of oil in the markets, but and no one no one there to consume. So you said earlier, described earlier, how Saudi Arabia historically in the boom years uh, used its oil reserves to fund foreign policy objectives. How has this sharp decrease in oil prices impacted Saudi Arabia's foreign policy and impacted um, regional politics more broadly? I think there is no better example than Lebanon at this point. Um, Lebanon is, um, is a, Saudi Arabia has been very supportive of Lebanon financially since what we call a Ta'if um, agreement that ended uh, uh, the Lebanese civil war. And Lebanon is a small country uh, its own economy is based on services, not really that major uh, uh, economic sectors that can really sustain the economy. Um, Lebanon has been an economic turmoil for the last two years, and we all have seen the demonstrations in Lebanon that started last year around October and November. And uh, just before COVID, the Saudi finance minister and the French uh, finance minister both of them were uh, were meeting on the sideline of uh, uh, G20. And both of them were talking about bailing out Lebanon, supporting Lebanon, that we always stood by Lebanon. That was late January, early February. And then now you can imagine what happened to this conversation. That conversation was never revisited because you cannot really do this anymore because you need to restrict your finances. Lebanon defaulted. Lebanon couldn't pay its 1.2 uh, billion uh, euro uh, bond for this year. 
uh, in negotiations with the IMF, uh, things do not really look well. And you have huge political disarray in Lebanon. No one knows what's happening. So that's Lebanon. Second mm-hmm. country. Where I should say, uh, just, just to plug my own podcast, I did an entire episode on uh, Lebanon's economic crisis in mid-May uh, at the time in which they were uh, in negotiations with the IMF because, as you said, Saudi Arabia and France were no longer willing to bail them out. What, exactly. So what's another? So Lebanon's a good example. What's another example? I think Jordan, to some extent, is a good example. It's a country that doesn't same thing. It's a country that uh, uh, has a lot of economic problems, doesn't really have a robust economy, doesn't really have a commodity, uh, a single commodity that's selling like the, the, the Gulf countries, um, and has been uh, a main uh, beneficiary from Gulf wealth somehow, whether uh, expats sending uh, salaries to Jordan, so whether finan- direct financial support from Riyadh and Abu Dhabi and Doha to King Abdullah and Amman. Uh, all these uh, uh, factors are changing. Uh, we have seen expats uh, returning home. Uh, we didn't see uh, any kind of initiative coming from the Gulf to support the uh, financial needs of a man of, of, uh, of Jordan. Jordan needs to pay at least $1.8, $1.9 billion this year. And so far, we have no idea how Jordan is going to finance this. Still, the country is stable, but there is some sort of dissatisfaction. And we're speaking about a country that's filled with millions of refugees, whether they're Iraqis or Syrians. And it's a country that has witnessed mass uh, mass protests across different years for the last three or four years. And of course, one of the U.S.'s uh, more staunch allies in, in the region as well. Um, I, I wonder, what about Yemen? Um, you, know, M, you know, Yemen is sort of one of the prime examples of MBS's um, assertive foreign policy. And it seems since the start of the year, uh, the conflict and, and, and since the economic crisis that COVID-19 has brought, that Saudi Arabia seems to be um, reducing its investments in the military campaign. Is, is that sort of a fair assessment, do you think? Indeed. Uh, intervention is consuming a lot of uh, resources. We don't need to do an economic and financial analysis to figure this out. Uh, uh, the fact that you're sending troops, that you're financing Air Force, uh, boost on the, tra- uh, on the ground, and even the local militias uh, uh, inside Yemen, this has cost a lot and billions of dollars. No one knows what exactly is the number that Saudi Arabia is paying or already has has paid for the intervention in Yemen, but some estimates talking about at least $200 million a day to finance its own operations. That's massive. That's uh, consuming, specifically for a country that's uh, that's suffering and it started to run a budget deficit because of the oil price uh, uh, plunge and the rest of the geopolitical changes. So you mentioned earlier Lebanon is an example of a country that's on the edge right now because of of the economic crisis in the region and its inability to turn to the you know, Gulf states as its financial backers. I'm wondering what indicators you might be looking towards throughout the region to suggest to you um, whether or not this moment will be sort of profoundly disruptive to domestic stability in many of these countries. I mean, earlier you said that you know, the reason that many of these, the way that many of these countries that have oil wealth responded to uh, the Arab Spring was just to pump money back into their economies. Uh, to what extent are countries around the region particularly vulnerable right now to to just social unrest? 
I think COVID-19 accelerated an existing existing trends in these countries, meaning um, COVID-19 made countries that are struggling much more struggling. Um, surprisingly, there are some countries that I, I thought they might be more, much more vulnerable, but they proven to be much more resilient. I'm speaking about Egypt, Tunisia, and Morocco, specifically in North Africa. Uh, they showed much more resiliency. The international debt markets trust their economies. Uh, they have been uh, working closely with, in, uh, with the international financial institutions like Royal Bank. Uh, their economies uh, sustain uh, sustain the shutdown, uh, and part of that that they already have been they have been doing a lot of reform, economic reform. Egypt, for example, did uh, a 2016 deal with the IMF. They did economic reforms. They created uh, financial cushion. Uh, that helped them to weather the storm of shutdown, and it would be the only country in the entire region with uh, economic growth, like 2% growth this year. Part of that, they have a state-led investment strategy, so that worked. Um, Morocco, I think, uh, the good relationship that Morocco has with with Africa community, uh, the EU, uh, they had financial cushion, also did some reforms. Uh, they have some sort of parliamentary system that was capable of uh, uh, getting popular support made Morocco in a much more better place. Uh, so I just want to take a moment and encourage people to answer, to uh, ask questions. Uh, again, you can do so using the chat box or, or the Q&A box. And in just a couple of moments, we'll turn to your questions. Um, but let me maybe ask you this as, as a final question from my end, Mohammed. You know, you sort of provocatively speculate and, and say in your piece that, you know, this moment, COVID-19 will reshuffle the regional order and the geopolitics of the region in profound ways. Um, what should we be looking towards to suggest to us um, whether or not some of these broad reshuffling and restructuring of the geopolitics of the region are are underway? What are you looking towards? What indicators are you looking towards? And what might a post COVID-19 global order or regional order look like in, in the Middle East and in the Gulf states? That's an excellent and tricky question. You That's why I saved it to the last one, to give people plenty of time to ask their own questions. Um, so you asked two questions rather than one. I think the first, the, the main sign that I'm looking for is what's going to happen in Libya? How much, how much the Libya situation will change? Libya is uh, a play like a country where you have at least eight different players are there, regional players, international players, and it's the country that will decide what's the status quo and what's going to happen. Meaning, will uh, Saudi Arabia and UAE um, and Egypt uh, stand strong and uh, support the eastern, uh, the eastern um, General Haftar in the eastern Libya, or they are like. We're done here. It's not our thing. Uh, how Turkey and Qatar uh, will react? Are they only there to sustain that Boko group uh, in Tripoli? Are they willing to escalate further? Uh, are they happy to just have uh, the divisions of Libya like a federal system when you have the East and the West um, are somehow disconnected uh, uh, or part of semi-autonomous uh, regions? What's going to happen in Libya? I think Libya is the main uh, uh, signal here. No one knows what how Libya is going to uh, is going to change. Uh, no one knows. No one. The American situation is fluid, fluid, uh, fluid. I'm sorry. And uh, the EU is not really sure what they want to do there. 
Um, so I think Libya is a sign. And now I should say, just just to, to stop you there, I have an episode on Libya publishing tomorrow uh, on, on some of the exact questions that Mohammed just posed. Um, I'll edit this part out of the uh, podcast broadcast. This is just for you live live folks, so subscribe to the podcast if you want to get that. Um, go ahead, Mohammed. sorry. And I think the original system of the original order would be great decoupling. We always use the term grid decoupling to describe the technological decoupling that's happening between Beijing and Washington, D.C. But I actually think that they're gonna have, you're going to have two distinct uh, three regions uh, uh, in Middle East and North Africa. You're going to have the Gulf with its own challenges, their own finances, and their own problems, and much more looking uh, into their own specific region. And you'll have North Africa with clear North African identity with North African problems, um, very detached from what's happening in the East. And the third sub-region for me would be Levant. Uh, different, uh, much more tied to what's happening in East Mediterranean and Turkey, uh, very disconnected uh, from the Gulf. Um, that kind of con- connect, uh, um, this kind of one hegemonist uh, uh, order that was there uh, up until the Arab Spring is over. It's done. This is the end of it. Uh, you would not really have that kind of Arab solidarity that Riyadh will stand for uh, for Rabat or Tunisia will be in a line with Beirut. That's that's over. These are my two cents. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mohammed. Let's now turn uh, it over to the good folks at YPFB to moderate uh, the question and answer uh, session. So, Jeffrey, I'm going to turn it over to you to read questions that have come in. Great. Thank you, Mark and Mohammed, for the, that discussion. Um, I definitely learned a good bunch about my Middle East politics um, during this climate. So I guess I'll just start off with a few questions I had on my mind. Um, so this is to you, Mohammed, and then, Mark, you can chime in afterwards. Um, do you have any insight as to whether OPEC Plus will extend their production cuts next month? And what are the major factors that would contribute to their decision, one way or the other? I think no one knows. I think that's just to be very, very clear with you. No one knows. Uh, We thought that when Moscow and Riyadh um, are meeting in March, that we have a deal, that we are in COVID-19 era, there is a destruction of both supply and demand, and no one would risk uh, an escalation at the time. It happened. It was a major surprise for everyone. We didn't see this coming. So I would not be foolish and tell you that we're 100% sure that there's a deal next month. We do not know yet. Uh, However, there is some reasons to believe that both Moscow Moscow and Riyadh cannot really handle um, another uh, sinking prices like what happened uh, from March until June. So we hope that the, the deal extends, uh, but let's just hold, uh, wait and see. Great. Thank you. Um, I have one more question. So you touched on the potential effects on the Libyan civil war due to uh, COVID-19, but how has COVID-19 and the sinking oil prices affected specifically Turkey and then in turn, you know, their potential uh, support of the GNA during the civil war. Let me just interject for people who are listening. The GNA refers to the Government of National Accord, which is the UN-backed government based in Tripoli. Go ahead, sorry. Um, 
the Turkish intervention in Libya was not only uh, motivated uh, by oil. There are some ideological reasons and some strategic reasons. The ideological reason, uh, reasons for Ankara is supporting an ideological ally, which is the GNA, um, as Mark mentioned, uh, which consists mostly from uh, Islamist leaning, uh, Muslim Brotherhood leaning, Poko uh, parties in Tripoli, and they are in the opposite side from Egypt, TUE, and Saudi Arabia. So that's number one. Uh, number two is the maritime borders dispute. Um, uh, Turkey has a problem with every single country in Eastern Mediterranean. That includes Cyprus, Greece, Egypt, Israel, Lebanon, name every single country there. And Turkey has a problem, which is the maritime borders. Uh, Turkey, uh, there are a lot of gas in the area, just to summarize the situation. Uh, Egypt started uh, a project, it started a forum called the uh, Mediterranean, uh, Mediterranean Gas Forum, which is based in Cairo, includes all the countries except Turkey. Um, and Egypt aims to be the energy hub, the gas hub that takes the gas from not only from Egypt, but from Israel um, and export it to, uh, to the EU. Uh, Turkey is not part of that, and Turkey is uh, feeling that they are part; they are uh, left out. So, Turkey, when Turkey decided to intervene in Libya, uh, they had a deal with the GNA, uh, and this deal is uh, maritime borders to redraw the maritime borders. That meant that Turkey literally has maritime borders with Libya, regardless of Crete and all the uh, Greek islands in the Mediterranean. And that's a major problem. And that gives, of course, Turkey some sort of legitimacy to do uh, expectation and uh, gas rights, which is needed indeed for the Turkish economy that has been bleeding seriously for the last four or five years. I'm looking at a map of the Mediterranean right now, and it does not make geographic sense for Turkey to border Libya, just for, for the record. Um, 100%. <laughs> uh, do we have other questions? Yeah, so um, this is this one's from Colleen. Um, at the start of the COVID nineteen crisis, we heard a lot about how the crisis was affecting Iran. Uh, what is the current situation, and has the economic crisis affected their involvement in other countries such as Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq? Lebanon is a very, um, I'm sorry, Iran is a very interesting uh, case. Meaning, in addition to all uh, the problems that Bistro states are facing right now they have the U.S. maximum pressure campaign. Um, so not only that the oil prices have been sinking for the last couple of months, actually Iran cannot export oil. Iran exports around 500, maximum 400,000 barrels a day from 2 million uh, capacity that they used to produce uh, uh, before the maximum pressure campaign and, and sell under the, US, under the Iran deal, nuclear deal. Um, COVID-19, came in, uh, the country was not equipped. The country doesn't really have the infrastructure to withstand such pandemic. And the sanctions crippled the country's uh, ability to buy uh, the needed uh, medical supplies. According to uh, OFAC and even Secretary Bambeo made this clear, co other countries can donate medical supplies to Tehran. Tehran cannot buy medical supplies. So that left Iran at the mercy of certain donors. Uh, we have seen the UE sending medical supplies, but that was not enough. So that's just to summarize uh, uh, the geoeconomic situation of, of Iran. 
also the Iranian political leadership was reckless at the beginning. Um, when COVID started, uh, Iran, uh, the Iranian leadership was aware of COVID cases, but they disregarded it and they didn't tell the public. And, and instead, they hold the parliamentary elections, mass concentration of people. And as you remember, this election came after the assassination of uh, and the killing of Qasem Soleimani. So there was a lot of people in the streets. That led to a mass spread of COVID-19. Uh, Today, the country opened up. Uh, they are having the same second wave problems. Uh, it's everywhere. Uh, the trend is upward. Um, we don't really see uh, this trend going down anytime soon. Yeah, let's keep going if there are more questions. Great. So this is a question from Kayleen. Um, if Lebanon is struggling, aren't assets cheap and ripe for international investment? What is stopping international investment from swooping in and taking advantage of these discounted assets? Um, compare this environment relatively to Greece. On the other hand, what is the answer to turning this around and attracting investment? Uh, what resource does Lebanon have to help their neighbors out in exchange for economic redevelopment? I, I think there's a distinct difference between Greece and Lebanon. Greece, with all the structural problems that the Greek uh, budget has, it's an EU country. It's an EU country with, uh, within the eurozone. It's part of the customs union. Um, eventually, you have Frankfurt uh, as a backer. Uh, you have the European Union standing behind Greece, even even though that there were a lot of problems, a lot of disagreements uh, about the uh, the bailout. Put Greece aside, getting back to Lebanon, uh, Lebanon has many problems. Uh, the first one is uh, Hezbollah. Uh, Lebanon right now is being perceived as a proxy for Hezbollah, and uh, or Lebanon equals Hezbollah and. Hezbollah equals a proxy for for Iran. Uh, that means uh, there is a gray area that every single business dealing that you have in Lebanon might be part, might be sanctioned. So when I talk to a lot of businesses, they are like very skeptical. They don't want to risk anything because you eventually no one wants to uh, bother OFAC or having OFAC uh, uh, freezing your assets because of violations of sanctions. That's number o one. OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control, we should say, uh, for those who don't know. It, it's the branch of the Treasury Department that uh, enforces U.S. sanctions. Sorry, go ahead. Thank you for that. I, I've, I've been doing this a long time. I know, I know. Uh, throw many acronyms at me. I can handle it. Um, so that's number one. You do not want to, to mess with OFAC. Number two is... Uh, there is a political disarray in Lebanon. Uh, there is a disagreement in Lebanon. Uh, the usual Etaif agreement is not there uh, anymore, uh, meaning that you are speaking about um, a government that's perceived as Hezbollah and Maronites. Uh, it's not inclusive. Sunnis are not there anymore. Um, and uh, people do not want to buy assets from a state that's hold hostage uh, uh, with, for Hezbollah. That's basically the bottom line. And we are seeing mass capital outflow from Lebanon. And this is why there is, of course, the traditional route to go about it is imposing a capital, uh, uh, preventing capital from fleeing the country. And that's a big problem for international investors who want to actually take their money and leave the country if the country is sinking. Um, and right now they are in discussion with the IMF and we have seen a lot of resignations coming from the senior advisors the Lebanese uh, economy ministry because they think that the, this government is not taking the negotiations with IMF seriously. Can I ask just maybe a quick follow-up there? Is 
Be, you know, because of this perception of Hezbollah sort of, you know, running the show and, you know, having political power, legitimate you know, political power in Lebanon, uh, you know, how is that complicating or is that complicated negotiations with the IMF in terms of the U.S. perhaps wanting to prevent the IMF from bailing out uh, Lebanon? Is that a factor at all? It's a factor. It's there, um, given the fact that uh, the current U.S. administration is very anti-Iran and very strong on Iran and Hezbollah and its own proxies. And this is the administration that did one of the most robust, aggressive sanctions regime against Iran. So um, if you're asking me, well, uh, uh, will this be a factor? It's indeed a factor. Um, We are not really sure how the negotiations will go. Because some 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 people might argue that if we didn't build out Lebanon right now, uh, can can we handle another civil war in Lebanon? That's an argument. So the pros and cons of this: the country right now, as as you all have seen the news, bank, banks are being burned. Uh, there is no police regime anymore. Uh, the country is in disarray. People lost count of the exchange rate for the U.S. dollar to the Lebanese lira anymore. It's done. Uh, the one of the most uh, and historic universities in the region, the American University in Beirut, is slashing its funds, its own um, em- and employment, and downsizing because even the American University in Beirut cannot survive this. Um, so there are some people can argue that we should at least give Lebanon something to flood the economy um, and making sure that we have the right conditions to prevent Hezbollah from benefiting from this bill out. But so far, everything is very fluid, and no one is aware of where the where the negotiations are standing today. I think we can go for another question if there's one. Great. So um, this is another question from Kayleen. Um, what is the status behind the Saudi Vision 2030? Uh, what geopolitical forces and specifically world governments are playing for and against the prices needed for Saudi to IPO Aramco and achieve their domestic realigned? investment away from oil in Saudi? So I guess this is a little bit of a two-part question. Um, I think there's no, there's no real answer at this point to any of the diversification plans around the regions, whether Saudi 2030, UE 2033, I think, like all these plans right now are hostage to the current geoeconomic uncertainty. But to speak about Saudi Arabia, uh, for instance, I think the Crown Prince vision is very clear. He thinks that Saudi Arabia has been behind for a long time, and this is the time for the country to move forward. And there should be uh, there should be structural reforms that are hard and tough. It's hard to, for me to see and imagine him slowing down on his 2030. Also, let, let's remind the people that Vision 2030 is his own. Uh, his own uh, uh, fingerprint. It's basically his own plan. This is his own vision. This is how he's introducing uh, the succession from uh, what we call in Arabic uh, from the fathers to the sons, generation uh, generation transition. Um, so he would not back down from that. I think he would be selective about where to spend. Uh, so you will find um, a lot of uh, Saudi, like PEF, uh, uh, the investment, the Saudi uh, wealth fund investing much more in technology. So right now they're trying to close a deal with GIO, um, a big startup in uh, in India, like uh, $2 billion. Uh, they just purchased $10 billion worth of assets in big tech companies in Silicon Valley. So 
that kind of trend will increase. Uh, they were trying to have uh, to uh, have partnerships with a lot of international companies in tech and uh, uh, non-oil and gas stuff, uh, retail. Uh, posting the demand would be one of the major uh, major priorities for the Crown Prince and the school. So again, he will be selective. He will not really back down uh, from Vision 2030. I think we can keep going with questions. Yeah. Um, so let's go with the next one then. So this is kind of following on the question about Iran previously. Um, what is the trajectory of the Iran-Saudi contentious relationship? Um, where do you see it going? How do you think it was affected by both COVID-19 and the uh, drop in oil prices? Again, when people do not have money uh, uh, to support their own activities overseas, uh, things a little bit de-escalate. This is, this is a typical trend. Um, I think both countries are struggling. Both countries uh, uh, were uh, caught by surprise, like anyone else, by COVID-19. But also because they are arbitral states, uh, the COVID-19 had double impact on their own economies. Uh, and in addition to the sanctions on Iran, which is a bit, a bit of a, big pro- a bigger problem. Um, I think other than Iraq, I don't really think you will see a lot of major Saudi-Iranian uh, proxy war. Even in Iraq, uh, Saudi Arabia is trying to re-approach the new government in Baghdad, trying to have a, a strong relationship with Baghdad, trying to introduce uh, Iraq to the broader Sunni Arab countries and um, invest in Iraq. So that's this is where Saudi Arabia is only doing in, in Iraq. Uh, I think Iran is struggling. I think Iran's main problem right now is the Trump administration, fighting with the Trump administration in uh, Iraq. Uh, trying to make sure that the U.S. forces leave Iraq. Uh, that's it. But Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, that will not capture the news anytime soon. Great. Thank you for your insight. Uh, I think we have one last question, question in the chat. Um, so feel free to enter any last questions. But um, So this one is from Amanda. Uh, what is the level of attention and interest of Yemen by its neighbors and the international community? I'm sorry, one more time. Uh, what is the level of attention and interest of, Iran, of Yemen by its neighbors and the international community? Um, when COVID-19 happened, it, it made every single thing non-priority, uh, just to summarize. So Syria is not a priority. Yemen is not a priority. Even Libya was not a priority until you have major powers fighting there. Uh, but again, COVID-19 is, uh, is taking over the new cycle. Um, and no one's paying attention to Yemen. Yemen is in a very, very bad situation right now when it comes to food supplies, uh, uh, spreading of diseases, um, and the, even the fracturing of, of the remnant of this Yemeni state. Right now we have uh, the Southern Transitional Council taking over certain islands uh, and fighting with the internationally recognized president government, Abdelhadi uh, Mansour, in addition to the Houthi in the north and Sana'a. The countries in disarray and and uh, and and the countries that were involved with the intervention, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, are seem to be very dissatisfied with the situation, and uh, UAE already uh, leave or still have few forces, and Saudi Arabia is explicitly looking for a way out of Yemen, and so- leaving Yemen out there with no real solution or political framework. 
the UN failed. That's the, the bottom line for all these years of negotiations and dialogues. And there's no, on the horizon of the coming two, three years, I, th I think Yemen will just get worse. So we have time for a few more questions, and it looks like questions have been coming in. Uh, so let, let's keep at it. Yeah, it looks like last call uh, popped a few questions. Um, so this is another one from Kayleen, and this is kind of a very broad question, so you can try to answer as you know concisely as you can. But what are some of the effects we're seeing from the assassination of Soleimani uh, beyond all the immediate effects we already know about? Um. That's actually an excellent question. I think uh, Soleimani was larger-than-life figure in Iran, and the whole Faisal uh, Quds, the RGC brand, uh, was somehow associated to that courageous, brave, once-in-lifetime leader uh, who have been fighting uh, the American Satan in uh, Lebanon and Syria and fighting uh, uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq. Um, and when you lose someone like Qasem Soleimani, uh, you have a problem because, um, for example, Iran's relationship with uh, the factions in Iraq was not really institutionalized. It was through Qasem Soleimani. It was personal relationships. It was Qasem Soleimani picking up the phone and talking to Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis or Khazali or the rest of the militia leaders in, in Iraq. So when you lose an asset like that, it's really hard to uh, fill his shoe. And this is the problem right now. That the RGC is with the new uh, with the new leader Ismail Khani, he's not really there. He, he we have seen him trying to uh, uh, to be to replace Qasem Soleimani when it comes to relationships. Not not he's not really perceived uh, as the same. Uh, he couldn't deliver the same results uh, like the like what Soleimani used to do in critical moments. Uh, but I think. If Iran, uh, if we waited a couple of years and we might have a new generation of leaders, the younger kids who fought in Syria and fought in Iraq in the insurgency against ISIS, who can fill the shoe of Qasem Soleimani, who can go through the ranks, people right now who are in mid-30s, 10 years from now, they'll be mid-40s, and, 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 and be the same generation as the generation that fought against Iraq. And these are the masterminds and strategists who have been leading the Iranian insurgency forces around the region. This is how I see it. Uh, but immediately, it's hard to fill Qasem Soleimani's shoe in Iraq. Great. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up with one last question in the chat. Um, so this is from Colleen. Do you think we are at a turning point in Syria, um, given the recent anti-Assad sentiment expressed by the citizens due to the economic situation? Um, are the new U.S. sanctions helpful, or what do you make of this? The U.S. sanctions are uh, helpful because it's targeting the families and the figures of the regime who are uh, committed, who committed human rights violations and benefited from the war and killing of innocent people. So yes, it's justice, and and I'm glad that this is, the Caesar Act passed. Uh, however. Uh, that means less money and finances, even it was already limited, but even these limited finances will be extremely rare and that will literally uh, make people living in Syria very hard and harder and harder. And I will not be surprised if you see a second wave of migrants, people trying to cross borders, even from the Assad regime uh, 
controlled areas because of the lack of basic services, water, electricity, and all this, uh, and all the needed basic stuff. Um, he right now, Assad has a lot of problems with the minorities that supported him during the civil war. Assad brand, uh, Assad's entire narrative during the civil war was the Sunnis will take over the country and they're going to slaughter uh, all the minorities. It's whether Christian sects, Alawis, uh, Druze. Uh, but once you really, when you win the war, well, and we can actually argue what does it mean winning the war if Syria is already totally destroyed. But he won the war. He already he's the only figure in the in in Syria. He's controlling uh, uh, Damascus, and the Sunni threat and Al Qaeda and ISIS is not there anymore. But then people need food. His own people needs food. And when people hear um, uh, Assad's cousin, uh, Rami Makhlouf, speaking about these kind of billions of dollars, and they hear about all these corruption cases, and that the, the sons and daughters of the regime's leaders are in London and uh, in Dubai and uh, just hanging out and going to bars at night, while the country is fully destroyed, people are getting angry. Even the most loyalists to, the, to, to Bashar al-Assad will get much more angry. Uh, and this is what we have seen in Swaida. Uh, protests coming from um, um, a city that used to be a strong support uh, 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 city or base for Assad. Um, and I think that will definitely increase because of the sanctions and the limited uh, finances that the regime will have. Great. Thank you for all your answers, Mohammed. Uh, I think we'll um, I'll defer to you, Mark, to wrap up your section, and then um, I'll end up with some closing remarks. Uh, well, first, uh, thank you to Mohammed. Thank you very much for uh, taking my questions, taking everyone's questions. Big thank you to YPFP for uh, putting this all together. And uh, you know, I have been doing this podcast for a very long time, so I'm glad that this is the second time around that I've hosted a live uh, session with YPFP. Hopefully next time we can do it in person. Um, but until then, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can subscribe to the podcast. I publish episodes twice a week, every week on topics just like this one and other topics that relevant and of interest to young professionals in foreign policy. Uh, so big thank you. I'm going to turn it back over to Jeffrey and we'll see you next time. Bye. All right. That was fun. Uh, thanks again to YPFP. Hope everyone is okay out there. Uh, let me know what's on your mind. Hit me up with an email. You know, I love hearing from you and yeah, as I said at the outset, if you're with an organization and you want to partner with a podcast around an event like this, love to hear from you. See you later. Bye.